All right, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44 is where we're going to be. Luke 19, 28 through 44. You can go ahead and turn there. We have some Bibles provided in the seats here. If you don't have one of your own, uh, take that one home. We'd be glad for you to have that one. Uh, As of this past Wednesday, we are now in the Lenten season. Uh, That's 40 days leading up till Easter, uh, not including Sundays. And so much like the Advent season prepares us for Christmas, uh, the Lenten season prepares us for Easter. And Lent is an Anglo-Saxon word for for spring or springtide or March, uh, which most of the the season falls in the month of March. Uh, We have no biblical obligation to observe this season, but it's a great opportunity for us together as the Church of Christ to, to really use it to remember Christ's temptation his suffering, and his death. And so what I would do is, is I would encourage us as a church family at the beginning of the season to, to allow this season to help us just to, to, to make room. Let's, let's use this season to make room so that we might pray, we might reflect, we might press into the scriptures on the life and the, the death of, of Christ, and we might really uh, even take time to, to fast, uh, to, to repent, to turn from sin, and, and, and to fast not out of obligation or out of duty, as many do in this season, uh, but to fast really out of a desire to pursue the Lord and, and to go deeper with the Lord. Easter is about the grace, about Jesus doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so don't fast out of any kind of obligation should you fast. Uh, but if you feel led to, I would encourage you to do so with a heart of, I want to press into the, the Lord, make room, seek him in, in a deeper way. And so as a church, what we're going to do uh, in this season is we're going to host morning prayer uh, for the next six weeks leading up to Easter at the office, uh, same address we gave you earlier, at the office on Wednesday mornings from uh, 6.30 to 7.30 in the morning. So if you go to work early or you catch a bus or the train early, if you want to come there and meet us there, uh, we'll do that for six weeks. And together, whoever shows up, uh, we're, we're going to press in, uh, in prayer. And I think it'll be a really, really good time together. Also, uh, in conjunction with the Lenten season, we're going to be walking through a teaching series that we're calling uh, The Final Week. And we're going to look at Jesus' final week walking on the earth. And so each gathering that we have together, we're going to look at one day of the week leading up to Jesus' um, resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, no activity, he's in the grave. And then Sunday, Easter Sunday, he resurrects. And this is a tremendously important week in the life and the ministry of Jesus. What each gospel record, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do is they really pull the brakes and slow down during this this season, during Holy Week. And so what you'll notice as you look through the scriptures is that 33% of the gospel of Matthew is given to this one week out of the three years, 33%. 37% of the Gospel of Mark is given to this one week. 25% of the Gospel of Luke given to this week. And 42% of the Gospel of John is given to this week. And it's really understandable why the writers might do this. I want you to think about in your own life. Some of you maybe had a family member or, or a friend who knew that they were dying. I wonder if any of you have that. Maybe because of cancer the, the prognosis was not good, or maybe simply because of old age, and, and the time had come. And in some sense, it's a, it's a great privilege uh, to be able to know that it's coming, rather than be taken by surprise, 
Because probably what you've noticed with loved ones who have been in this situation is knowing that their time has come, they can live these final days out with really great intentionality. They can say the things that need to be said. They can do the things that need to be done. They can get their affairs in order. And that's really what happens in this final week of Jesus, that the scriptures have prophesied his death. He has prophesied his death. He knows it's coming. In fact, he ordained the coming of his death. He's bringing things together now. And what he does throughout the course of this week is massively important. It's done with great intentionality, very calculated. And so do not miss the things that Jesus does during this week and that the gospel writers uh, give great attention and detail to. And so at the beginning of this final week, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Today, it's Sunday. It's also known as Palm Sunday, and we'll celebrate this again later on in the month of April, the Sunday before Easter. But let's look today at Palm Sunday in this week, and let's really think about what's going on in the heart of Jesus. We'll see uh, what's happening here at the beginning of this final week. We'll see Jesus again right into Jerusalem, where it's all going to go down in this city over the course of the next week. His followers are cheering him on. They're saying things like, singing things like, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, as we sang when we opened up uh, this morning together. And this triumphal entry into Jerusalem is, is written in all four gospel accounts. It's not often done with, with, with all the gospels, but this event is written in all four gospel accounts. And one thing that we, we love about this guy, Luke, this writer, Luke, was that he was a, a physician. And so to him, details are really important. You want your surgeon, right, to really be careful attention to detail. And that's how Luke was. He was also later commissioned by uh, a government official named Theophilus to compile eyewitness testimony and write the book of Luke. And so we're going to look at Luke in particular in his account of what's happening here on this Palm Sunday. Uh, he's a little wordier. He gives us a lot, of, a lot of detail. And in this particular instance, what he gives us is verses 41 through 44. It's a really strong picture of the heart of Jesus. Something really heavy is on Jesus' heart at the beginning of this week. And that's what I want to look at together. So at the end of last year, uh, Marty Walsh was elected as the new mayor of Boston after 20 years from our previous mayor. And, and some of you maybe stayed up late and you watched his, his victory speech. He had lots of fans in the crowd singing his praises. There was chanting happening. There was cheering going on. Uh, there was uh, celebration. And he even had some opponents in the room, right? The news reporters who were there to do their duty. But generally speaking, the room was just completely full of people singing the praises of, of Marty Walsh as our new mayor. And he could barely even get a word in if you watched it. He could barely talk because every, he'd have to say a little sentence and people would erupt. And he'd say a sentence and people would erupt. Now, this is for him one of his most massively important and, and highest moments in his life. But imagine with me if while he's doing this, this and all this commotion is going on, imagine with me if he just started sobbing. What if he just broke and just lost it in the middle of his uh, victory speech? And these aren't tears of, of joy. They'd be tears of brokenness and sorrow. Can you imagine? It'd be kind of, kind of strange, kind of out of place. It doesn't seem fitting for the occasion, that's what we see happening with Jesus in this moment. It's this moment of great celebration. It's this moment of personal accomplishment. It's the pinnacle of his celebrity. However, in the midst of all of this, people singing Jesus' praises, he weeps. He, he, he breaks down and he weeps, and it shows us the heart of our 
God. And one thing that we mention around here is just this image of the, the heart of Jesus weeping over the city. We noticed when we looked in the book of Nehemiah back in the fall that, that Nehemiah is broken and weeping over Jerusalem. Prophetic image of what Jesus is doing here. And it's so important to see the, the brokenness that Jesus has for his city, that we too might be broken for our city. I pray often that as I come over Metropolitan Hill and start heading down Washington Street and the skyline of Boston emerges, I pray often that God would never allow my heart just to become cold and complacent. Yeah, that's the city. But to always be brokenhearted over the, the lostness of this great city. And that's the heart of our God that we see here. And so let's get into the text a little bit. Luke chapter 19, 28 through 35 is where we'll go. It says, and when he had said these things, he, Jesus, went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt, a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Let's stop there if we can. So for some time now, the the ministry of Jesus has been moving towards Jerusalem, where he would do his great work on the cross, and he's gearing up to go in, and it is now officially go time. There's no stalling for Jesus. He says, Now is the time. No one's going to stop me, not even you, Peter. It's going to happen. It's go time. It's go time. I remember as a kid, and now I see it with my kids all the time, it's like when it's time to be disciplined, they're really good at stalling. Uh, but but i got to go to the bathroom first. And they have all these, Jesus, no stalling. It's just, it's go time. Let's get this punishment on for sin. He's going into Jerusalem. It is time. And he, he, he goes in. And, and, and the triumphal entry, again, is told in all four gospel records, and each of them will give us little pieces of the story, so I may fill in holes from time to time. They're borrowing from other gospel records, but we see that Jesus is staying in Bethphage and Bethany, and the book of John adds that just before going into Jerusalem, Jesus was having dinner with Lazarus, who he recently resurrected from the dead. You know the story. And also with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And John tells us that, that the crowds of people were coming to Jesus and also to Lazarus. You can imagine if he's resurrected Lazarus from the dead, people want to see Lazarus. Can I touch him? Is he really alive? And I also want to see this Jesus who supposedly raised him from the dead. And we're not talking about Jesus massaging his heart and him coming back for a few minutes. We're talking about he was dead, buried, mummified, and out for four days, and now he's alive. And people say, hey, I want to see this, if this is legit. And so people are coming. And I point this out to show you that, again, we're at the pinnacle of the celebrity of Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus at his highest. People are coming from all over. He could have stayed and said, no, we're not going to go into Jerusalem yet, and stalled a little bit and taken more pictures with his friends and his followers so that they could put it on Instagram. He could have preached a little bit more because if ever they were receptive and wanted to hear what he had to say, now would have been the time that they would have been receptive, right? I mean, we see Lazarus, we see Jesus. You tell us and we'll we'll listen. But he said, no, I have something to do. 
the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And I've got to lay it all down. Now is the time to save the lost. I'm going into Jerusalem. Strap me up in the electric chair. It's time. I'm going to die for them. The wages of sin is death. And I'm going to die for them. So that though they die, yet they will live, like he said to Lazarus. So he's ready to roll into Jerusalem. He sends two of his disciples ahead of him to, to get a cult. He tells them, you're going to find a cult where no one has ever sat on this cult before. I want you to untie it. I want you to bring it to me. If somebody says, yo, that's my cult, what you say to them is, well, God has need of it. And what happens? You read it, you say, well, that sounds redundant. Yo, that's my cult, and God has need of it. And so it's exactly as Jesus said in Boston, we call it carjacking. In Palestine, they call it cult jacking. But he's very intentional here. He says, give me a cult that no one's ever sat on. Bring it to me. And this is what he's doing. This is so important. He is fulfilling directly Zechariah 9, 9. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Catch it. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This was written long before, and now it's happening. He's, he's saying, this is what's happening. I am the king, righteous and having salvation. Sinless, only one able to provide salvation by dying for you in your place. And so our Jewish friends, though we love them, they miss the Messiah. They're waiting for this spectacular event, God coming in, lavish living, gold chariots. But their Tanakh, the Old Testament, right inside of it, Zechariah says, righteous, having salvation is he, humble. Not gold, humble, and mounted on a donkey. He was to come humbly, and he did, and they missed it for that reason. Now let's read on if we can. Verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already, on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Everything that he's already done saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So, here's what he's saying. He starts pressing forward with this mission, working his way towards Jerusalem. And people are laying their coats, imagine, laying their coats on the ground. It was a very humble, poor nation, Israel. 90% of the nation was farmers, and they're saying, walk on top of it. That's a pretty, pretty big move. I remember back in like the 80s when I had my starter jacket. I don't know how that was so cool when I was a kid. Your starter jacket, you, starter jacket was everything. I'll touch my starter jacket. Lay that on the ground. I'm telling you. Laying it on the ground, Jesus is walking over it. John and, and Mark and Matthew all say that they took palm branches and they waved them and laid them on the ground, hence Palm Sunday. Now, coats and, and palm branches is this beautiful picture of just the respect and the submission to King Jesus. And palm branches are this Jewish national symbol. So we have the bald eagle. This is their Jewish national symbol. It kind of seems like maybe they're starting to get it a little bit. They're laying the national symbol down, and he's their Davidic king, their Jewish king, and they're 
letting him walk on top of the symbol that Jesus is going to rule over our land, Jerusalem. We have him walking on top of their, their symbol. He's walking into this city, and many of them, most of them, if not almost all of them, are assuming that he's going to go in there, he's going to bust out a sword, and he's going to whip up on Roman rule. Again, these, these farmers, most of them being farmers, have experienced Rome heavily taxing them, where they can barely even make it, barely even feed their family, oftentimes confiscating their land. We get ticked at the, the percentage that our government takes from us. But can you imagine these guys just even taking all their land so that they can then go live in nice big palaces out in Rome? And so they're saying, Jesus, end this. You're, you're going you're gonna to end this. And they're, they're pulling for and expecting this political military Jesus. It's going to lead Israel to their independence again. And so as he's descending down the, the western side of the Mount of Olives, they carpet the ground before him. And again, they're, they're loudly rejoicing and they're loudly singing and praising God. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest and it seems like they're beginning to get pieces of it. Yet, as, as, as he comes in, something's off. Something is, is terribly off. Jesus says that if you've seen me, you, you've seen the Father. Colossians chapter 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God. That he is God who has come into the, the earth in human form. And, and he's here. And, and they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Which is a quote from Psalm 118. It, Hosanna means save us or, or, or save us now. It's, it's a twofold word. It's a request, but it's also a praise. It's saying, please save us, and a praise in that they're saying, you can save us. Please do it, and we believe that, that you can do it. And it seems like, again, they're starting to get it, but they're, they're, they're off. Jesus did not come to whip up on Roman rule. That's such temporary thinking. And a lot of times we're guilty of that, right? Just temporary thinking. It was temporary thinking. He was going beyond that, and he was going to whip up on Satan, sin, and death, our eternal issue, our eternal bondage. So they're worshiping him, quoting Bible Psalms. John chapter 12, verse 16, says that that Jesus' disciples did not understand at first, but that when Jesus was glorified, it says, then they remembered. In other words, they they worshipped in part, but it didn't click until after his death, burial, and and resurrection. Aha! Now I get it. Now I know who he is. And then they say, truly this man is the son of God, like the the Roman centurion who helped crucify Jesus, but then right after being crucified, he says, he's he's the son of of God. That happens with many of of Jesus' followers. They don't get it until after he accomplished it. The mission. So Jesus, as he's coming, he lets them declare, even though they're off a little bit, he lets them declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then verse 39 says this, check it out. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They were flaming angry at this point. I mean, they were angry at this point. They knew what was going on. They knew their Bibles well. They knew what Zechariah 9.9 said. That Jesus has staged a Zechariah 9.9 moment. The king coming into Jerusalem, humble and on a donkey, bringing salvation. Jesus, shut them up. End this, Jesus. This should not be happening. This is wrong, Jesus. 
And Jesus stops and he rebukes them, doesn't he? These leaders who are scowling in the, the corner. He says, listen, I'll tell you this. If they don't sing, we'll have rocks singing. That'd be kind of cool. But the world will glorify me. The world will praise me. Now, here's what's going on. Up to this point, Jesus hasn't been super openly referred to as the Messiah. It would have caused a ruckus prematurely. And he knew the perfect time. It was going to be three years and then the cross. So he hadn't been real open about it. But now it's time. He's allowing it. He's even encouraging it by coming humble and mounted on a donkey. Remember, he's being incredibly intentional. Every single move is calculated this final week. And, and he wants to be sure that no one is mistaken. He is claiming to be the Messiah. I am the Messiah, and it will enrage many of you. You will kill me, but that's why I'm here. So it's go time. I'm going to do this, and you'll be ticked, but it's, it's all right. And so while some people are singing his praises, others are plotting his death. While some are worshiping, some are conspiring. It's time to take him out. Now, let's read on the rest of our passage for the morning. Verse 41. When he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that were made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, down, tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I want to I wanna really land here if we can. It's a very important picture, picture very beautiful and appropriate for our, 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 our content context here. Get this image that Jesus is descending over the hill and there's a red carpet in front of him of cloaks and palms. People are loudly singing his praises. Noise, excitement. We got a Marty Walsh moment here. This is huge. This is massive. And he comes over the western ridge. The skyline emerges. And bam, he's flooded with emotion. And he begins to weep all over the place. The word literally means he's wailing loudly. That kind of cry. It's not, there might be a little tear in Jesus' eyes. Is that what's happening? No, he's wailing aloud. And he's saying, would that you had only known this day that was meant for peace. But judgment will come, he says, on you and on this place because you did not know the day of your visitation. In other words, you've been waiting for the Messiah He's come, and you've missed him. And he weeps, and he declares judgment, both at the, the same time. I want to see that he's, he's compassionate, and he's holy, balanced perfectly together. That he must declare judgment because he's just, but he also must show his compassion and save people because that's who he is. It's something that we oftentimes have trouble balancing, but he is just, and righteous, and he must judge because he's holy. I've said this before, but we like justice to be served, except when it's on us, right? We want people to, to get the tickets they need to, to stop speeding down our street because we have kids running around, but we don't want anybody to ever give us a ticket, right? We like justice, except when it's on us. And we really love compassion, at least in our country. 
many other countries today struggle with the compassion because they really lean towards justice. But we must balance both of them. And he wants to save and he wants to be just at the same time. And so he says, judgment is coming, but I'm weeping at the same time. And sure enough, history will tell us that 80, 70, sure enough, just as he said, the walls come down. And many, many people die. The city is destroyed. But verse 42, he came for peace. He came for peace, but they reject him. Now, listen, he's not surprised. His tears, it's not tears of, of being surprised. God is sovereign. He knows all things. But he was heartbroken. We need to know that. He's, he's sovereign, but he is heartbroken. A lot of people see a sovereign God as this dictator laying his fist down and saying, here's what's going to happen, decreeing it with no compassion. And we see his sovereignty and his compassion at the same time. He's heartbroken, and he's wetting these cloaks and these palms out of his compassion. Now, here's where it gets really confusing, I think, for many people. It gets confusing when we really think about the dichotomy of, of the moment here. That crowds are worshiping, and Christ is wailing. It's kind of, kind of confusing, isn't it? He's wailing, saying, You've missed my visitation. That the Messiah has come. He's visited you. God has come to earth and you've, you've missed it. Well, you look at this and you're like, did they miss it? Because they're worshiping you. I don't, I don't quite get this. They're, 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 they're singing. But we have to remember that the same people who are worshiping and singing loudly at the end of the week, Friday, are also going to be loudly saying, crucify him, crucify him crucify him. What happens over the course of this week? What happened was that Jesus didn't end up being what they wanted him to be. They wanted him to be a political Jesus, but what they needed was an eternal king Jesus. They wanted a politician. See, the issue is twisting Jesus to be what we want him to be rather than allowing him to be what we need him to be. This is a caveat, even if we don't like it. They wanted a politician to whip up on Rome. They needed an eternity-shaking king to save them from sin. And Jesus' heart is broken because his time has come, and they are twisting him to be what they wanted him to be, rather than allowing him to be what they needed him to be. Now, as we round third base, this is the point in the sermon where I say, I'm talking to you. You talking to me? I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. What is it for, for you today? What is it that you want Jesus to be? You just, this is what I want him to be, that he might not actually be. I'm almost certain that it's not a political Jesus. I mean, we're in Massachusetts, right? So I'm pretty certain that we don't want him to be a political Jesus like they did. But maybe for, for us, it's we want him to be an endorsement Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, here's my agenda. Here's my issues. Endorse it, God. And so what happens is people start ripping out pages of the Bible. And we leave maybe one or two token verses on love so that Jesus can endorse something that he doesn't actually endorse. Maybe you want him to be your endorsement, Jesus. Some people want him to be our religion fix. And I'll show up, do my thing, rub the, the lucky wooden pew, say I, I've been here, 
and go do my own thing, live my own life, and I got my religion fixed, and maybe he'll just bless me because of, of that. When Jesus clearly and repeatedly said, you must give me everything. You must take up your cross and follow me. You must deny even your own life and, and follow me. Like some of our brothers and sisters in South Korea at the hands of a tyrant today. Stop making him an easy Jesus and let him be who he is. The kind of Jesus who says, take up your cross, follow me, give me everything. All or nothing. I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth. The Bible is so clear. I try to be cautious about saying the Bible is clear on this because there are some things it's not super clear. It's a little fuzzy. But one thing that's clear, the Bible is clear. Jesus demands everything. But I think the greatest issue that plagues American Christianity is this kind of fuzzy Christian middle. Be our religion fix. So... This Wednesday, you walk around town and lots of people have ashes on their head. You're a believer? <laughs> really? It can be shocking. Well, you know, I'm just kind of doing, just trying to make sure. Religion fix. They were bombed on Tuesday night for Fat Tuesday. But Wednesday, I'm going to put ashes on my head, which symbolizes dust and ashes and repentance. Now, that can happen. You can truly come to repentance that quick if you really are there in your heart, much like the thief on the cross. But he's not just, hey, just get my religious fix. And that's where some of us twist him today. Other people twist Jesus to be a a vending machine. Jesus, you know, I want to pray. Give me what I want. Dispense. Give me what I want. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a, a spouse. Maybe it's financial gain. Maybe it's a house. I'll follow you as long as you give me what I want even though there are a lot of times then what you want is not what you need. And Jesus knows what you, you need. And no wonder people bail, right? Because Jesus doesn't always give them what they want. He doesn't always put out. And see what's happening here is it exposes your heart motivations, right? And that's what's happening here is that Jesus is flushing out all the posers. And that's what he does all week long in this, this final week is he flushes out the posers. Matthew chapter 7, he says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will declare to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So firm on this. And it's hard to hear, it's hard to preach. But I, I just want to stand before you today and, and call you, the same call that, that Jesus gave to the, the messed up church in Corinth. And he says, examine yourself to see if you're truly in the, the faith. Like forecast a little bit. Should it get tough? Should the storm come? Should Jesus not be this Jesus that you're, you're trying to make him out to be, contort him to be? Would you bail? We need to examine ourselves. And here's where we, we, we start. We start with just a prayer, just very simply. God, show me the wicked way in my heart. Show me who you really are and help me to exercise faith in who you really are. Show me how I'm I'm twisting you, ripping out pages in my Bible, being selective so that I can make you what I want you to be. When you know what I need, God. I'm your child. You're like the perfect parent. You know what I need. My kids would eat candy all day long if I let them. 
but I know that they want it, they don't need it. That's how we can be with God. And he's weeping and he's wailing because he says, I know what they want, but it's not what they need. It's so short-sighted. They need eternal King Jesus. They need to place faith in me for all eternity. He says, oh, that you would know. If you would just get it. He's brokenhearted because they don't get it. The things that were made for peace. Peace with God by trusting in Jesus. And so again, I want to call you to examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. And some of you, you're getting it, and you're, it's really hitting you in a very real way right now. And what we need to do is we need to repent. We need to turn from sin and turn to him. And say, I, I give my life to you, Jesus. And we call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, the Bible says. And you say, Jesus, I know who you are. I know why you came, and I need you, and I want to follow you seriously. He says, then you will be saved from the destruction that's coming. Not necessarily the walls coming down of Boston, but the eternal destruction that we all face. So I want to invite you to that. Christians in the room, I I always want to invite you here as I look at this passage. And that is, do you have the heart of Jesus? Are you weeping over the lostness of the city? Our city, Boston, our Jerusalem today. Or does it just kind of become second nature? It's cold. Yeah, that's Boston. That's how it is. That's how we roll. They don't follow Jesus. I will. More than that. Let's really be brokenhearted over our city. I've told you before, many times I've told you this. When I was a a young guy, I had a a teacher at church say, the hardest prayer I ever started to pray was, was give me the eyes of Christ, Lord. He said, when God gave me the eyes of Christ, I started to be broken for people that I never thought I'd be broken for. I started to cry when I wasn't a crier. And listen, that's something I pray frequently. God, give me the eyes of Christ. And I might have eyes that are full of tears for the lostness around me. You know what happens when your heart is really broken for people? You're moved to action. Some people say, oh, I don't ever share my faith. It's not necessarily because you don't know how. It's because you're not equipped. It's because you don't care. We need the eyes of Jesus. We need him to give us his heart. And so wherever you're at today, let's, let's take some time just to, to deal and to talk to God. Again, maybe even twisting Jesus, and you need to come to Jesus humbly and say, I, I need you for who you are, not for what I want to make you out to be. And then others of us in here, we need to say, Jesus, give me your eyes that I can really care and be deeply moved at the lostness around me. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for this very familiar passage for many of us. We've heard about Palm Sunday. We've heard about what you came to do and, and your heart and all of it. But God, we just pray that it would, it would just hit us over and over and over again in a, in a new and a fresh way. As your Holy Spirit loves to do, that you would cause it to be a, a surgeon's scalpel in our heart, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit in both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. So I pray that it's doing that even in this moment. As we see Jesus coming in, that we would identify in our hearts where we're worshiping you, but it's not really the true Jesus. It's this idol, this twisted Jesus that we've kind of created. Now we see you for who you are and worship you fully. 
God, I pray that today in this moment you would be calling people to yourself. There would be men and women in this room who say yes to Jesus today. They would turn from sin and they would turn to you who died on that cross at the end of this week. Taking the electric chair, death row punishment for us. Pray that they would trust in that sacrifice for them. But then that you resurrected three days later because death has no hold on God. And we would worship you as the one who's died for us but who's also victorious over Satan's sin and death. Do that work in our hearts this morning. For Christians, Lord, would you draw us to you and we keep looking at you and may you, Holy Spirit, awaken our hearts to the lostness around us, to the brokenness around us. And would you give us tears, real tears, for the spiritual condition for the people around us. Kill the selfishness in our hearts. Make us like Jesus. I thank you for the morning. We continue in worship in Christ's name. Amen.